0: Last week, we took a look at the enemies of the cross. We saw their end, their God, their glory, and their mind. Their end is destruction, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. Their God is their belly. They worship and serve Their appetites. Their glory is their shame. They boast of things they ought to be ashamed of. And their mind is set on earthly things as opposed to heavenly things. The most frightening thing about the enemies of the cross, however, is that we can become one. If we lose our spiritual focus, if we rationalize and even glamorize our sin and start making the fulfillment of our lusts and desires the prime objective of life. And as we noted last week, that's easy for that to happen. Well, We're going to keep it from happening. We don't want to be enemies of the cross. We want to remain friends of the cross forever, and to do that, Paul indicates we need to focus on three things that he goes on to talk about in the third chapter of Philippians, verses 21 and 22. We need to focus on our citizenship, our expectation, and our coming transformation. Let's see what he says. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship, our expectation, our transformation need to stay focused on those three things. And we begin this morning, as Paul does, with our citizenship. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, citizenship is a big deal. And as we've mentioned before, the the Philippians were proud of their Roman citizenship. Philippi was actually a Roman colony 700 miles away from the city of Rome. But its inhabitants had all the rights and privileges of a citizen of Rome. So when Paul spoke of a citizenship in heaven, they understood what he was trying to say. And I think William Hendrickson, a commentator from the past, explained it best. Do citizens of Philippi think of Rome as their native land to which they belong, in whose tribal language or records they are enrolled, whose dress they wear, whose language they speak, by whose law they are governed, whose protection they enjoy, and whose emperor they worship, as their Savior? In a sense, far more sublime and real, these Christians dwelling in Philippi must realize that their homeland or commonwealth has its fixed location in heaven. It was heaven. That gave them birth, for they were born from above. Their names are inscribed on heaven's register. Their lives are being governed from heaven and in accordance with heavenly standards. Their rights are secured in heaven, their interests are being promoted there. To heaven, their thoughts and prayers ascend and their hopes aspire. Many of their friends, members of the fellowship, Are there even now? And they themselves, the citizens of the heavenly kingdom who are still on earth, will follow shortly. Yes, in heaven, their inheritance awaits them. Their heavenly mansions are being prepared. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. Not on earth. And not in the United States of America. As Christians, we are citizens of heaven first and foremost. So if we're citizens of heaven, what are we on earth? Well, it might surprise you, but we are actually aliens. Aliens living in America. We all are. Peter made that clear in 1 Peter 2.11 when he writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And he admonishes us in the first chapter to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our stay on earth. We're aliens. We're strangers here. We can't allow ourselves to be dominated by this world. We've got to remember where our home is. I think the old gospel song said it pretty well. This world is not my home. What? I'm just a passing through. We must never forget that. Never forget that. That keeps everything in perspective. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Now, that's not to say that while we're here, we have no obligation to civil government. Jesus made it very clear that we are to render to Caesar his due. And Paul instructed us to pray for kings and all in authority in order that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We should be praying for our president and for all in authority over us in this great land of ours. We do have responsibilities here. And Christians ought to be model citizens on earth while recognizing their true citizenship is in heaven. That's what keeps us on target. You know, when writing about the heroes of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the author shares a common element that kept their faith alive no matter where they lived. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. No matter who they were or where they lived, the saints of old who had faith and walked by faith acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth. Their hearts were set on a heavenly country. Abraham, even while living in the promised land, lived as an alien For, the scripture says, he was looking for a city which has foundations, something that won't crumble, something that will always be. A city whose architect and builder is God. He lived in expectation of something better. And so must we. So must we. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are we looking for the holy city, we're eagerly awaiting the Savior, our Savior, who will return. We're waiting eagerly. For his return. At the ascension, Jesus was lifted up while the apostles were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and two angels spoke and said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. They had frowny faces on when they saw Jesus go up. The angel said, Put that smile on. He's coming back. He's coming back. The same way you saw him go up, he's going to come down. He is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We must not ever forget that. Someday, someday the trumpet of God will sound. The sky will part and every eye will behold Jesus as he descends I don't know how it's going to happen. Techies try to tell us that modern technology has made it possible. He'll be on everybody's flat screens. I I don't think that's the way it's going to work. I think everyone will just see him. They'll just see him. And we live in anticipation of that day. We can't wait for that day. More than 300 times the New Testament draws our attention to the second coming. Now, we're not told when he's coming. We're told to be ready because we don't know when he's coming. And he could come at any moment. The apostles expected him to come in their lifetime. It's evident by what they wrote. And so should we. So should we. J.B. Phillips pictures all of creation waiting on tiptoe for what's coming. I like that picture. I like that. That's the way we should live. On tiptoe. Expecting Christ to come at any moment. On tiptoe. But then what about what about the prophecies that some say must be fulfilled before he returns? Now, we don't have time to explore them all today. Let me simply assure you that Jesus does not have to wait for anything to take place on earth before he comes. I'm absolutely convinced of that. All of was prophesied has been fulfilled. It's been misunderstood, misinterpreted by many. But if you study it out. And you look at it carefully, it has taken place. The apostles expected him to come. It was fulfilled in their day. Jesus can come at any moment. He doesn't have to wait for anything. The only thing that's holding him back is his patience. Peter made that clear in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sometimes we say, well, it's been so long. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming back. That's two days. That's two days. And he's waiting for a reason. He's being patient for a reason because those who are outside of Christ will be condemned when he returns. And he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want anyone to be condemned. It's not his will that any should perish. And so he waits. That's why he's delaying. But he will come. Peter continues. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all things, all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? On account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. For the sake of those outside of Christ We're grateful that He's still waiting. But that should not dampen our desire to see Him. We long for His return. Because we're looking for that blessed hope to be fulfilled. We're looking for the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who will come back. In Revelation twenty-two twelve, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. And we understand from the Gospel, we'll be rendered according to what we've done with his Son. Whether we've accepted him and his gift or not. Behold, I am coming quickly. Our response should be like John's. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. How often do you think that? Not just when things are going rough. You say, Man, I wish you'd hurry up and get here. Even when things are going good, do you say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's going to be even better. If we are living in expectation of His coming, that will be our response. Because not only will we see Him, we will become like Him. That's amazing. We are longing for our final transformation. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. When Christ comes back, we will be changed. Our fleshly body will be transformed. We will be given a body similar to his resurrected body, a body with form and substance, but a body not limited by physical laws and limitations. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with this change at some length. and In verses 50 through 53, we read, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. At the second coming, which, if it doesn't occur before our death, will in effect occur at our death, we will be changed. Changed. Our mortal, perishable body will be changed into an immortal, imperishable body. We will be given a body that is suited for eternal life. We're to long for that transformation. I've come to believe that the aging process is a reminder... (laughs) We got a better body coming someday. <laughs> we'll be given a body that's equal to our spirit. A body that is perfectly fitted for all eternity. Now, how will that change take place, we really can't comprehend it. How's it gonna happen? But we do gain some understanding of it by looking to nature. And that's what Paul does earlier in the the 15th chapter. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds, a body of its own. We plant a seed not in the hopes of preserving it, but in the hopes that it will die and bring forth new life. And we don't plant a seed just to get the seed back. We anticipate something greater to come from the ground than that which we planted. I really doubt that Paul and his brother and his dad would plant all those little seeds over several thousand acres just to get the seed back. Wouldn't happen. No. You want more than one, right? You want bushels, you want lots. You want something great to come from that which is planted. Paul says that's the way we should think of death. We're planting something because we know something better is going to come from it. It's going to be different. It's amazing. It's amazing. Our bodies are like those seeds. That's the best picture I think we can get. And we don't plant our bodies in a preserved form in the hopes that they'll last for all eternity. We preserve our bodies for cultural and sentimental reasons, and that's not bad. Nothing wrong with that. We don't expect our fleshly body to come alive at the second coming. We anticipate a new spiritual body. To come forth from the fleshly seed that was planted. Paul makes that clear as it continues in verses 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised in A spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You know, we're thankful for and try to take good care of the natural body God has given to us. Okay? Our body as it exists now is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. So we care for it. We love it. We're grateful for it. But we long for our spiritual body. We've been spending quite a bit of time on Wednesday nights exploring the struggle that even the Apostle Paul had in the flesh. You know, we invite in the spirit, and the Spirit of God comes in, but it comes into a fleshly body. And there's a struggle. And as long as we are in this fleshly body, we're going to have a struggle. We're going to fall short. We're going to give in to some of the appetites of the body that are inappropriate, perhaps. We're going to disappoint ourselves. Paul even said, Oh, what a miserable person I am. When I think of what I do. I don't want to do that. The things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this? And then he goes, ah, I know. Christ will. And he has. He's not going to hold me accountable for my failures in the flesh if I'm trusting in him. But still that struggle is there and it makes us uncomfortable. We're unhappy. We know we disappoint God. We disappoint ourselves. But someday we'll have a body That won't disappoint. A body that will be equal to our spirit. To our desire. We're long for that day. We're long for that day. While we're in the flesh, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. Someday, we'll have a spiritual body equal to the desires of the spirit that indwells us. And what a glorious day. Enemies of the cross? No. We won't become enemies of the cross. We'll never become enemies of the cross. Not as long as we remember our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. All right. Not as long as we are expecting Christ to return. And not as long as we're longing for the day when we will be like him in every respect. Oh, to be like thee. That's our desire. Let's make that known as we stand and sing.